Well, good morning, everybody. Can always count on Bob for some enthusiasm there. Um, Pastor Steve is in Harrow this morning preaching. I believe it was an anniversary message, so he is uh, down there. Uh, Joe DeFraga is not feeling well, so he's not here. Ken's over there. And you're stuck with me. Uh, That makes me a substitute, and you know what a substitute is, don't you? That's like an old rag that you stuff into a broken window when you haven't got a real glass pane. And one time I used that, and the person came to me afterwards and said, you weren't an old rag, you were a real pain. (laughs) So we're looking on this Palm Sunday... Uh, We also have communion later on, and we do want to uh, uh, take a look at some scripture this morning to just center our thoughts. Um, It's Palm Sunday, and uh, I've I've been thinking a little bit about the oddities of that name. You know, uh, the Palm Branch on the, we, we all know what Palm Sunday was all about because you've probably been in Sunday school and those children's events where you were probably given a little bit of a palm leaf or something, or maybe you got to march around the church and carry that thing and everything else. But um, So when we say Palm Sunday, we know that that's the Sunday before Easter Sunday, and we know the significance of it, I guess. But uh, it is odd, isn't it, that we just call it Palm Sunday because it seems like uh, only the Gospel of Luke, or sorry, the Gospel of John uh, mentions palm branches. The other ones do say that people uh, cut branches and laid them on the road, but uh, there's a lot of other things going on on Palm Sunday. I mean, it's the great time when uh, Jesus rode the little donkey into Jerusalem, and uh, the prophecy of uh, Zechariah chapter 3, and verse 3, I believe it is, is uh, fulfilled. And uh, there's a huge crowds of people. Um, this was a very significant event for those that were uh, had some knowledge of what the prophecies had said about the Christ. And for those that were wondering if he was the Christ, this would have been a, a big moment. But I'm still curious as to why we call it Palm Sunday, because there's mention of, of how people took their cloaks off and put it on the donkeys, uh, the donkey and uh, then laid them on the road and let the donkey and the Lord Jesus walk on the, on the coat. We don't call it coat Sunday. We don't call it cloak Sunday. We don't call it donkey Sunday. We don't call it prophecy fulfillment Sunday. We call it palm Sunday. And it seems to me that for some unknown reason, we have a habit of taking a look at the small thing and making it the big thing. And sometimes we miss the big thing and this would be a trage- tragedy if we do that with what was actu- actually happening uh, during this time. Um, so I guess, uh, I guess what I've written is it just, uh, it seems like it's one of those times that uh, uh, the important thing sometimes gets ignored or at least minimized anyway. Uh, we're going to look at a few scriptures here. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 13. Because we have this uh, moment 
taking place where, where Jesus is traveling the road down to Jerusalem, down the Mount of Olives, and I'm not sure what road it was in this First Chronicles passage, but it's another road that leads to Jerusalem, and some of you will be familiar with this story. It's uh, the story of the Ark of the Covenant being brought into Jerusalem, having spent, I think, uh, 20 years uh, in, a, in a home, uh, a place at, at Kiriath-Jerim. And uh, the Ark is a, uh, the, sorry, I should say, Israel is situated with uh, the new king, David. And he has uh, decided in his heart that he wants to see that the Ark of the Covenant gets brought back to Jerusalem. And you understand that the Ark was this age-old piece of equipment that uh, God had instructed it to be built, um, and it was to uh, be the container for the covenant, the, uh, the uh, Ten Commandments, the, the, the tablets of stone that had the Ten Commandments inscribed on them were inside the ark. And uh, it, it has its place in the sense that uh, it was carried usually when the, uh, the conquests of the Israelites as they entered uh, Jerusalem um, when they when they crossed the the uh, crossed the the river there into uh, into uh, Jerusalem they had the into Israel into the land of Canaan sorry they had this uh, ark with them and the priests of course carrying it and God had given some specific instructions on how it was to be handled uh, when the, the you'll remember when the walls of Jericho fell um, the Israelites were supposed to travel around the city, I believe it was seven times. And uh, the priests were to lead the way carrying the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark was a very age-old thing, and the king, the new king has decided that we need to bring that into Jerusalem. So we start reading here in uh, chapter 13 and verse 1. David conferred with each of his officers, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, he then said to the whole assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, and if it is the will of the Lord our God, let us send word far and wide to the rest of the brothers, our brothers throughout the territories of Israel, and also to the priests and Levites who are with them <clears throat> in their towns and pasture lands to come and join us. Let us bring the ark of our God back to us for we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. And then in verse 4 it says, The whole assembly agreed to do this because it seemed right to all the people. When you read those words, something seems right to all the people, watch out because it isn't always right. But you know, uh, if you take a look at this, uh, what David was doing, he was recognizing that during the reign of the king... Well, they really didn't seek the Lord on this sort of thing. They really didn't involve uh, the ark. And, and so uh, he, he wants to make it right. I think his, his intentions are proper here. So he confers, and I believe that they did uh, assemble about, um, I believe, 30,000 soldiers. It was a tremendous huge crowd that was there to see the event where the Ark of the Covenant was brought into 
into uh, Jerusalem. <clears throat> well, we read on in verse 5. So David assembled all the Israelites from the Shihor River in Egypt to Lebo, Hamath, and to bring the ark of God from Kirith-Jerim, David and all the Israelites with him went to Bala of Judah, King Jerim, to bring up from there the ark of God, the Lord who was who is enthroned between the cherubim, the ark that is called by the name. They moved the ark of God from Abinadab's house on a new cart with Uzzah and Ahio guiding it. David and all the Israelites were celebrating with all their might before God, with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, cymbals, and trumpets. When they came to the threshing floor of Kedon, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he had put his hand on the ark. So he died there before God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of God that day and asked, How can I ever bring the ark of God to me? He did not take the ark to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Well, you can see that it was one of those events, I don't know if you've ever been at it, where you had something really, really great planned, and then something happens in the middle of it, and, and suddenly your big plans just take a real nosedive. Uh, that's what happened here. I think David's intent was right. He uh, conferred with others, so he had their, uh, their uh, go-ahead with the idea. It seemed good to other people, but the problem was that they didn't really remember that only the Levites were supposed to carry the ark. Um, nobody was supposed to touch it. And uh, when I first read this story, I thought, wow, Uzzah got a bad deal there. Because, uh, I mean, he saw that the ark was going to possibly fall off the cart or upset somehow, and so he was going to put out his hand and, and he was going to stop it from happening. And because he did that, God struck him dead. And I thought, wow, what a bad deal. But we start seeing that it wasn't particularly Uzzah's fault. It was everybody's fault because nobody was paying attention to the directives that the Lord our God had given to carry the Ark of the Covenant. And so poor Uzzah, well, he was the guy that, that put his hand on it and he was the one that died. But the reality was it wasn't supposed to be on an ox cart, whether the ox cart was new or not. It wasn't supposed to be there. It was supposed to be carried by Levitical priests. And um, so it ends up being a time of celebration that very quickly turned into a really sad day. And as it finishes off there <clears throat> uh, in verse 12, David was afraid of God that day and asked, how can I ever bring the ark of God to me? Well, I was talking about things being minimized, wasn't I? We do have a habit of uh, taking a look at the position of our God and realizing that he is, well, I should say we don't realize who he is sometimes. We do tend to minimize our sin, 
because we know that we're all guilty. We're all messed up in it. We all have sin, and we say, well, it's, I mean, I've sinned, and that's kind of a bummer, but everybody else has done it too, so it's not that big of a deal. But the reality is that to a holy God, our sin is a big, big deal, really big. And the way God will have his property moved, the way he will have things done, is all spelled out. And it was all spelled out. You can read about it at a later time in Exodus chapter 25 and verse 10 or Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 8. And uh, it, it just was a, just a, a sad day. Well, anyway, King Dave must have done some research, thinking, and uh, he finally does get it right. If you just flip over there to the page to uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 15. And I'm going to read some sporadic verses. The first two verses say, After David had constructed buildings for himself in the city of David, he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, No one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, because the Lord chose for them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister before him forever. And then uh, leaping down to verse 11, then David summoned Zadok and Abiathar the priests, and Uriel, Asiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Emimedadab, the, the Levites. He said to them, You are the heads of the Levitical families. You and your fellow Levites are to consecrate yourselves and bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared for it. It was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. You know something? King Dave gets it now. So the Lord got his attention, didn't he? Um, sometimes the Lord gets our attention too, doesn't he? I bet you yeah, if we had a testimony time, you can speak to that, all of you could talk about a, a, a moment where the Lord did something that got your attention and you adjusted your, your uh, outlook on things. Well, anyway, to carry on in verse f uh, f um, 14, <clears throat> so the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves in order to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God with the poles on their shoulders as Moses had commanded in accordance with the word of the Lord. David told the leaders of the Levites to appoint their brothers as singers to sing joyful songs accompanied by musical instruments, lyres, harps, and cymbals. And now skipping down to uh, verse 25. Sorry, verse 22. Kinaniah, the head Levite, was in charge of the singing. That was his responsibility because he was skillful at it. I've often thought, if you're going to do some singing, might as well get somebody that's good at it. And this is also something that David covered there. Uh, Berechiah and Elkanah were to be doorkeepers for the ark. Um, Shebaniah, Joshphat, Nathaniel, uh, Amasiah, Zechariah, Benaniah, Eliezer, the priests, were to blow trumpets before the ark of God. Obed-Edom and Jehiah were to be also 
doorkeepers for the ark. So David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of the units of thousands went up to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing because God had helped the Levites who were carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Seven bulls and seven rams were sacrificed. Now David was clothed in a robe of fine linen as were all the Levites who were carrying the ark and as were the singers and Kenaniah who was in charge of the singing of the choirs. David also wore a linen ephod. So also, or sorry, so all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouts and with the sounding of ram's horns and trumpets and of cymbals and of the playing of lyres and harps. As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David dancing and celebrating, she despised him in her heart. At the start of chapter 16, it says, they brought the Ark of God and set it inside the tent of, that David had pitched for it, and they presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before God. Well, we'll stop reading there, but it's a good story. And you'll see that the ark reached its destination. David and whoever was in the crowd that day learned a lesson that if we're going to do things, we're going to do it God's way. And you know something? Uh, we have been prescribed a way to deal with the sin that we have, haven't we? This sin is to be dealt with only through the Lord Jesus. And that is um, something that, uh, well, we're going to celebrate today. We're going to gather around the table in not very long, and we're going to remember him. We know what Easter is all about, and uh, this is a, a, a wonderful moment However, in much of the world today, certainly in this country, there is the notion that we can somehow good ourselves into the kingdom of heaven. We do, uh, we kind of have this thinking that we're going to balance out the scales, that uh, we have God and his holiness on one side and us and our good deeds on the other side. And if we work at that long enough, We'll balance the scales, and when we finally shuffle off this mortal toil, we reach heaven's gate, and the Lord will say, well, you've done a lot for me. You come on in. That's not the way it works. And I want to tell you, I know this, because I used to be one of those people. And I remember the hopelessness of that kind of thinking, because you never know how much it takes. It's a very unsure thing. And if you study the doctrines of God and you realize just how very holy he is and how very offensive our sin is, then um, you realize that uh, there's, there's just no way. There's just no way forward with this without Jesus Christ. Well, anyway, there's a wonderful passage of Scripture <clears throat> that is... Uh, whoops, got the wrong one there. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5. Some of you know it very well. Just before you get into chapter 6, so 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the last few verses there, and I'll start reading at verse, um, partway through verse 19. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And there's a fantastic thing there that uh, at one point in my life I did not see, and I hope that all of you see this, but by putting your faith in the Lord Jesus, by developing a real relationship with, with uh, the Savior, by trusting him completely and his sacrificial death on the cross, to remove that sin from you, um, we are in this wonderful place where, where he takes all of our sin and our rottenness on him and he was judged for it on the cross. Uh, we walk away from that now not bearing the sin, but when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of his sinless son. Um, it's one of those messages that if you think about it and if you take it into your heart, I don't think you can ever, you can ever get used to the fact that that's it, it's too, it is too good to be true, but it is the truth. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, I mean, we, uh, we could leave it there, but seeing as it is Palm Sunday, we're going to take a look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. And we have this... Uh, this triumphal entry, they call it. And it's Palm Sunday, and starting at Luke 19 and verse 28. <clears throat> it says, After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, as he approached Bethphage the Beth, uh, and Bethany, at the hill called the Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully 
to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. I'll just pause a moment there. Uh, you know, we have this this moment that we just talking about uh, where the ark came into um, came into Jerusalem. You have the king who has designed a lot of people. You heard some of the names. The ark is coming. The ark is coming. And they all had this huge procession. We read about it in Psalm 68. You saw it there as we read that first thing. Um, but uh, that was David developing this effort to make it all take place. In this particular procession, we have a whole lot of people who are are watching this this uh, man seated on a donkey, a small donkey, I would guess. And it means something to them because they are familiar with the scriptures. They think, oh, here's this. There it is. That's what that Zechariah passage means. He is the Christ. There, there, there could have been some of those. Then there's going to be a few skeptics. Um but I kind of think this is more of a spontaneous crowd that uh, was following Jesus. There seem to be always crowds around him. But I got the sense that this is a very big crowd as well. And the whole group is uh, with loud voices, praising God for all the miracles they had seen. Yes, but also in verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I think the Gospel of John and some of the other Gospels have it that he is saying, Hosanna, which means save, or more, more, uh, uh, more accurately, save now. They're asking for Christ to save them. Now, I don't doubt in a crowd you've got a lot of people with a bunch of different ideas. You've got people that uh, were skeptics about who Christ was. You've got the ones that are all in. They've seen the miracles and they're wholeheartedly believing. Um, you've got others that are undecided. But keep in mind, the same crowd, a week from now, are going to be shouting, crucify, crucify. Well, in verse 39, it says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, Rebuke your disciples. And Jesus said, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. In other words, if there's ever been a time to celebrate, this is it. I don't know if you've ever watched maybe in the, um, there was a documentary back a number of years ago, uh, uh, was his name Ballard, the guy that found the, found the, the, the wreck of the sunken Titanic in the Atlantic. Was it four or, four or five or six miles down or something like that? And they searched for this thing for days on end. They knew roughly where it was. And finally they saw this image of some huge hulk down there. It's not like a, a nifty little movie film. It was, it was kind of a, just a hulk, but they said, that's got to be it. And oh, the kai that you heard, the cheering and the celebrating, and they got out the, 
got out the wobbly pop and they were shaking it all over everybody and they were celebrating. I'm, I'm thinking like if I was to climb Mount Everest, well, any mountain for that matter, and, and I got to the top after working your way up there, you know, I doubt very much you stood up there and went, hmm, kind of high up here. Okay, guess I'll go back down. Wouldn't there be a moment where you'd celebrate and you'd just say, this is, hooray, I've done it. And I don't know, do some jazz hands or something. But this moment when David organized the, uh, the celebration for the art coming into Jerusalem, it sounds like it was, it was a great moment, but it was somewhat contrived. Um, this appears to be more spontaneous and yet you're still going to end up with the Pharisees. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And I think Jesus here is even saying, this is a moment for you to celebrate, not to be rebuking the disciples. You know that guy that stepped off the lunar lander? Uh, and back in 1969, he stepped onto the moon. Was his name Neil Armstrong or something like that? And he stepped out, and and there's that audio coverage of that where he goes, one small step for man, and a giant leap for mankind. And I think that that's really great. But if it was me, wouldn't you jump off that thing? Oh. I'm the first guy on the moon. <laughs> Roll around on the ground or jump in the air and do something great. This is worth celebrating. When Jesus says, you now have victory over sin and death, he means it. Because in our sinful state, we were stuck with this mess and you were on your way to hell, whether you liked it or not, and you'd be stuck there. This is a moment to celebrate. So, you know there's a proverb that says there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it brings him death. And uh, we've pretty well covered all that I wanted to say this morning to center your thoughts as we... As we uh, come to the table. But I wanted to finish this off as we continue to read the rest of Luke, uh, sorry, the, uh, almost the rest of Luke 19. In verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. 
And in 70 AD, that is exactly what happened. In fact, from the little bit that I know about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, uh, to this day, if they want to find the roads that existed, even the roads were ruined. So this road that I'm talking about that Jesus is traveling on, I don't even know if they know the exact location of the road because the destruction was so absolute. And the great temple that David, that Solomon built, gone. I expect that would be the time when the Ark of the Covenant possibly disappeared, although I, well, I expect it was gone before that. But uh, uh, anyway, the Ark is long gone, but Jesus is still here because he didn't stay dead after his crucifixion. He rose from the dead to prove that he was God. Well, anyway, this is about Jerusalem. This is about Israel. But what about you? Do you recognize the time of God's coming to you? Are you willing to recognize your great need for a Savior? Maybe you're like me. You can't do this on your own. If you want to talk more about this, see me afterwards and I'll tell you. But you can't do this on your own. And uh, this is a moment that you need to recognize that Christ died on the cross for your sins. And you have a part of that. Your miserable sin. Not, don't look at your neighbor. Your neighbor's got them too. That doesn't matter. You've got them. You're the one with the problem and you're going to stay in judgment for this. But not if you have received Christ into your heart and believe him wholeheartedly so if you're there don't minimize this whatever you do this is a big deal and it's time to celebrate